Welcome to the Talking Home Care Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Kelleher, Executive Director of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. This podcast on the first months of the new home health payment system known as PDGM was recorded live on January 29th as part of the Northeast Home Health Leadership Conference. The panelists we'll be hearing from today are Stacey Ashworth of Select Data, Chris Attire of Strategic Health Programs, and Nick Seabrook of Black Tree Healthcare Consulting. I am introducing the panel as well as moderating the question and answers that follow. The slides that we're showing, along with the presentations, are available on the webpage for this podcast episode. The discussion is about an hour, followed by 15 minutes of Q&A. Thanks for listening. So with that, I'm pleased to welcome the speakers for today's panel. Stacey Ashworth, Chief Clinical Officer of Select Data, Chris Ataya, VP of Business Intelligence at Strategic Healthcare Programs, known as SHP or SHIP, and Nick Seabrook, Managing Director and Founding Member of Black Tree Healthcare Consulting. Um, they've been convened as we get to the end of month one to give some early insights garnered in this first few weeks of PDGM. What we're going to start with before the formal presentation is what the panel is calling the buzz. They're going to give you a little bit of their thoughts on what they've heard now 28 days into. So please welcome the panel. This is Nick Seabrook from Black Tree Healthcare Consulting. Hi, I'm Stacey Ashworth, registered nurse, um, vice president of clinical innovation for Select Data. Yeah, hi, good afternoon. This is Chris Ataya. I'm the vice president of product strategy for strategic healthcare programs. Um, so some of the buzz that we're hearing right now is um, around Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it doesn't surprise us um, because Alzheimer's disease, when we did the analysis of claims data, um, it ended up being one of the most commonly coded secondary diagnoses for muscle weakness and abnormality of gait. Um, Alzheimer's disease is also a in a neuro rehab uh, clinical group, which means that it's a higher paying clinical group. So what is CMS expecting? Are they wanting us to code this Alzheimer's disease as primary? Um, or are we going to find ourselves placing our agencies at risk um, in, in terms of external audits um, because we're not directing our plan of care appropriately? So that's one of the, the concerns that we're, we're just batting around um, within the coding industry um, and going back to CMS. And we did express that concern as part of the PDGM work group with NAC um, that we felt that agencies have been unfairly targeted um, for the Alzheimer's disease, and um, now they are being encouraged to code it. So um, that's one of the things that we're looking at. The other is that from a leadership point of view, you're really operating in, in the foreseeable future. You will be operating in a change management environment. Every year there's going to be something new, and you're going to have to adapt to that quickly responsibly and take informed action. And we'll talk about what informed action is a, a little bit later as we go through the presentation. Chris? Sure. So, you know, we're, we're trying to just give you a sense of what we've been hearing in the first, um, first 30 days or so. Uh, one of the things I wanted to comment on was something that I was a little surprised at. I was surprised as we started the year with PDGM that there were still unacceptable diagnoses being coded. These QEs still were showing up. 
Uh, I did an analysis um, within eight days um, at the start of PDGM to look at what percent of the uh, periods that we were seeing coming in were questionable encounters or unacceptable diagnosis, and about 6%. So that actually surprised me. I had seen data last year that showed that agencies were doing a very good job at starting to get those those um, uh, questionable encounters down to around 8% as of last summer. So I was thinking it's going to be nothing, right? They've really got it, and uh, but not quite yet. Um, when I looked at uh, a couple more specifics, there was uh, in the first, um, out of about 177,000 periods that started the year, about um, 10,000, almost 11,000 of them were QEs. And that represented about 871 different codes that clients were using that were unacceptable. That's out of about 6,000 codes that were used as a primary diagnosis. So clearly we have some work to do. Um, I'm, I'm imagining some of this were, you know, agencies just trying to kind of get to the start of the year to kind of make sure their coding was right. Um, and I expect that number to come down, uh, uh, you know, pretty well in the next couple of months. The other thing I just wanted to comment on, and, and some of you may have seen this from our National Association for Home Care, just that, you know, we are really trying to hear from each of you about what's happening with PDGM. And we're planning uh, six webinars over the next six weeks. Um, I work with uh, Bill Dombey as part of HHFMA. And part of the intention there is to really listen to what's happening uh, in your agency. So it's going to be important for us for you to participate, um, to be able to give us some of the data to help us understand where the issues are, because we want to solve them. We want to try to fix some of the things we can clearly up front as best we can. That's going to then allow us to also do a, a national summit, which we'll be doing with Pat and the Home Care Alliance in um, uh, at the end of, uh, I guess, it was end of March in Worcester. Uh, that summit will be done uh, actually across the country in 11 other sites, um, and so we're hoping you will participate in that too. Thanks, Chris. Um, in terms of the buzz on, on what we've heard on the Black Tree side and myself specifically, I think if we look at what was the most intriguing to me and, and the one area that I was most intrigued to see early return on would be the billing component. You know, we knew that as soon as PDGM started, we're going to start sending those wraps out the door pretty quickly. So I was curious to see, you know, the reaction and, and how CMS was going to handle them. I think there was a little uh, stumble out of the gate. You know, if you look at what some of that buzz was, especially that first week, agencies were having some pretty significant issues with that IQIES system. They're still having some issues with that IQIES system with not being able to transmit OASIS, getting some incorrect errors. I know there was also issues specific to the new MBI numbers and a lot of the MA plans that don't necessarily require MBI numbers and having those get aired out in terms of when they're trying to be submitted. And we are starting to see some of those initial wraps pay, some of those initial PDGM final claims get to a, a processing status, but that was something I was definitely intrigued to see uh, early on. I also noticed a lot of confusion, I think, initially with some of the, the CERT periods and, you know, how do you handle those patients that started in 19 and they end in, in 20? How do they specifically get handled in terms of what those certification periods look like? And there was definitely uh, some, some confusion and some questions still around there. We're still hearing a lot of confusion around how to handle 
the old significant changes in conditions or the SCICs, or how do you handle these transfer patients that are going to either the, the hospital or going to other post-acute settings? How should they be handled internally as it relates specific to, to PDGM? So that's been a lot of the buzz that we've heard as well. Uh, still some buzz around Medicare Advantage. You know, I think that there's some agencies that have heard from some of the Medicare Advantage plans, and I still think there's a lot of agencies who some of those Medicare Advantage plans really haven't come out and said exactly how they're going to be handling PDGM reimbursement, which is starting to come to light a little bit more now as some of those initial wraps and whatnot are starting to get submitted. Um, the other kind of buzz, or I'll even call it a non-buzz at this point, is I think we're still hearing agencies being pretty tight-lipped on therapy. And we're not hearing anybody coming out and saying we're cutting therapy, like for the folks in the, in the room that might be involved with, in the SNF market. You know, that PDPM hit in, in October for them, and they cut therapy right away. We haven't heard any buzz in terms internally in this in this industry specifically with agencies that have really gone that route. Or do I expect that agencies have cut therapy? Absolutely, but no one is saying you know coming out and saying that they have uh, have cut that. So those are some of my initial thoughts. Stace, you want to take it away? If you see odd hand signals, that's code that I'm taking too long. So just kind of like let me know. So. We really wanted to give this presentation and a focus on um, how, as a leader, you can transition to PDGM, um, what it means um, leading under PDGM. And as I said in the buzz, you're really going to be acting or behaving as a change leader in the, for the foreseeable future. Um, part of the reasons for that is that you have statistical, the payment models are, are based on statistical analysis. That's done every year. Um, so you can expect every year there will be changes to the PDGM payment model. Um, then you have OASIS E coming out, and then you have all of these new quality measures that are being evaluated, approved, and, and implemented um, because we have to begin aligning those quality measures not only in home health but also for all across all post-acute care settings. So think about your wounds. Um, you should have seen the new J items with the falls. Those are, you're going to see more and more of those. So you, ha you have to constantly be adapting and responding to that. So when we thought about how we could present this in a way that was, um, that was easy to adapt and adopt and, and implement, we came up with the four leadership A's. Um, and it begins with assessment. So essentially, what are we seeing these first few weeks? Then we did analysis, how is it impacting or disrupting your own status quo, and what is your data telling you? You're going to hear a lot from us about data. If you're not comfortable with data, you're probably going to have to get started with improving your level of comfort with that, or managing someone who is really comfortable with data, which is my own personal preference. And then action. How are you implementing change to adjust to what you're learning from your assessment and analysis and advocacy, I cannot begin to tell you how important this is. As an industry, because Medicare is a government payer and it's our largest payer, there is a period where you ha they have to elicit comments and they have to respond to those comments, and they do. And I'll talk a little bit on, on how we as an organization or an advocacy organization were able to, within NAC as a PDGM work group, actually get some of these diagnoses changed to appropriate clinical grouping so you would receive the appropriate pay for that. 
That was based on data. That was based on feedback from agencies. So the challenges we want to address specifically today are questionable encounters. That's huge. OASIS and diagnosis coding. LUPA utilization. KPIs and benchmarking. Billing and cash flow and staffing. And then we, of course, want to reserve time. So I'm sure you'll have lots of questions or you may be hungry. It'll be one or the other. So the first we did... Um, Chris uh, and SHP ran an analysis, as he was saying in the beginning, on what is actually happening right now this month with the diagnosis coding. And as you can see, it's not that great. We really expected better than this. But is it the agency's fault? Is it the coder's fault? Where, where's the problem here? So that's the first step, is identifying the that your problem you're assessing is that you still have quite a few initial unacceptable diagnoses. Um, these top 10 represented 28.6% of all of the unacceptable codes that they found, and the top 20 represented 40.4%. So there's a pattern there. That immediately tells us there's a pattern. People all across the country are coding things or receiving referrals the same way. The new ones which should stand out to you are other general symptoms and signs. Oh my gosh, when did we ever code that? We're coding it because we think we have no other option. We're not getting a good referral back from that physician. The next one, which is new, is syncope and collapse. Okay, I, I can't code the falls anymore. I can't code the abnormality of gait. Well, they did say they got dizzy. And so you end up with syncope and collapse, and it's also not an acceptable diagnosis. Um, and then you have illness unspecified. What does that really tell you about the patient? I mean, they're sick and are we figuring it out? What's wrong with them? So, I mean, what they, what essentially this tells us is that we're getting bad documentation from the agent, from the referral source. I can't imagine a patient came from a hospital with an unspecified illness as a primary reason for home health. I'm guessing that may have been physician referrals. So then we said, okay, we got a problem. Let's do an analysis. So the first thing we look at is M68.2, which is muscle weakness. Old problem needs new education. And that's when we talked a little, when I talked a little bit about the Alzheimer's disease. The first thing you want to do is say, okay, when did I code? Why are they coding muscle weakness? What, what is common here? What are the secondary diagnoses that are appearing? What we find is that we're seeing a lot of the Alzheimer's disease coded as secondary. We see uh, congestive heart failure and COPD. And when we look at the clinical documentation, many times we actually see things that in home health would make it very, very difficult to, for that to be an improved admission, which is the therapist in the hospital is documenting that the patient um, went in for congestive heart failure, they're weak, because they've been in the hospital for a week. CMS doesn't pay for us to make people stronger after they've been in the hospital for a week. And so those are documentation issues that we have to be aware of and cognizant of. And so the beginning is to find the diagnosis in common, look at the secondaries, just start pulling some charts, just look, talk to your coders, what are you seeing? Talk to your clinicians, what are you seeing? Um, and I gave an example of the way that we looked at um, M62.8, and we actually looked at all of our pa the patients that had this coded as a primary diagnosis, 
what medications were changed for that patient. And so for my, my clinical people in here, what do you see? Well, we have quite a bit of porosamide, out of statins, um, potassium chloride, norvast, lisinopril. So we've got hypertension and cardiovascular issues here. But you also see gabapentin. So is it really muscle weakness that our patient is experiencing, or is it the peripheral neuropathy? So you can get a lot from looking at what, when you are trying to look at data in a volume, by looking at the medications that are in common across these patients. I'm just going to flip back. The other thing we found were the R codes. We argued with CMS about this quite a bit, um, the PDGM work group at NAC, because there are times when R codes are appropriate. ICD-10 was designed to be universal across all patient settings, and now CMS has decided, well, sure, it's universal across all patient settings. We're just not going to pay you for those diagnoses. So that leaves you in a quandary. What do you do about that? And that's when you start seeing more of these symptom uh, codes cropping up because people are using heuristic rules that they've, they've developed. Well, in ICD-9, I always coded PT only, and the next code I coded was muscle weakness, so I just moved that up in ICD-10 and we're good. And CMS said, no, no, actually you're not. That's a symptom code. And we said very clearly back in 19, that when we introduced <laughs> the home health benefit, that we were paying for diagnoses, that we weren't paying for general symptoms in an elderly population. And that was the rationale they gave back to us. We said, okay, sometimes it's completely appropriate to cold muscle weakness because a patient may go in and require extensive testing in order to determine the underlying reason for that muscle weakness. What they found out was that that wasn't the case. Or, or what they indicated to us is that, no, the physician needs to do the testing first. Um, so another analysis we did was using the five whys. This is a questionable episode. And the first thing we looked at was the primary diagnosis, was other abnormalities of gait. Then we looked at the second, we asked our first why. Why was the patient coded this? They were a therapy referral. And then we said, okay, why were they a therapy referral? They had abnormality of gait. Okay, why is their gait abnormal? Because they're having pain. Okay, why is the patient having pain? Because they have cancer of the nervous system, and then you end up with what the actual primary diagnosis is. The five whys are amazing. They're not just for toddlers. Mm -hmm. um, so from an action point of view is education. You've got purist coders, and you've got your extremist coders. The purist says, I'm following the coding guidelines. The extremist coders say, no, you told me I can only code what's on this list, and that's all I'm doing. So you have to adapt your education to the type of employee that you have. Um, and then workflow. Some of the introductions that they've made in actions for questionable encounters is do you do pre-assessment coding? Huge advocacy on some of the larger agencies for this. It's still out there whether or not it's effective. Um, and then intake. Do you actually have a hard stop at intake and say, no, I'm not going to take that patient? As a nurse, I advise against that because you should be able to see your patient in the home, evaluate their homebound status, and then determine why they're receiving home health. And then we talked a little bit about advocacy, about how you need to respond to the rule changes. 
if I give you my business card, please send me these little scenarios that you're running across uh, or your, your team is running across because it's those actual patient situations that allow us to communicate back to CMS and get the effective change. So OASIS and diagnosis coding, um, when you come into issues with that, one of the first actions that we said to take is a case conference. But what you have to decide with your case conference is when you want to have it. Some agencies are actually doing their case conference right after the visit, the initial start of care visit. Some agencies are doing what they call team assessments between nursing and therapy so that you're both in at the same time. They find that's effective. The patients appreciate it more. And then um, what are you going to talk about, what's going on with the patient, and why? And then you have clinician education, which needs to be always ongoing. Change management, we're going to be changing for the foreseeable future. So the clinician education needs to be continuous. OASIS Q&As, respond back to them. Do ride-alongs with your clinicians. Help them understand effective ways to manage their time in that home so they're assessing and observing as they're completing their visit. So there's a lot you can discover from a patient. And then from an advocacy point of view, we have two major things going on with the OASIS. We have quality measure and maintenance project. That's the project that I talked about where these quality measures are being evaluated, saying that they're statistically significant, they're relevant, and they're measurable across multiple settings. They just engaged a technical expert panel for that, and so you should start seeing um, information in the proposal in June of the new measures that they're instituting. And then you have OASIS-E, which they indicate will be the most significant and expansive change in its 20-year history because what CMS takes away, they give back. And so when we see OASIS-E, yes, they will take some things away, but they're going to add those measures that measure patients across post-acute care settings. That way they can see where a patient gets better, and of course we want it to be in home health. Well, good afternoon. Again, I'm Chris Satire. I'm the Vice President of uh, Patient Strategy, or Product Strategy for SHP, and pleased to be here with you today. So we're doing the four A's, right? We're, we want to talk to you about assessment. We want you to think about analysis. We want you to think about uh, action and then advocacy. So I'm going to be doing that for LUPA utilization, um, a big change, as you know, with PDGM. But it's a little early to really give you data yet because we've just barely started to bill. And maybe actually all you've billed is some LUPA cases because you really haven't had uh, many periods that have ended. But I wanted to share some data that we looked at at SHP back, uh, I think this was uh, calendar years 17 and 18. And I'm sorry, I, probably most of you don't have this slide deck yet, but um, what I wanted to show you, and you can see with the uh, conditional formatting that I did on this slide, that the, the darker the red, the higher the looper rate. The brighter the green, the lower the rate. And one of the things you can see from this is that the looper rates are a lot lower in period number uh, 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 three and then periods four and five, but they're the highest in period two. Can you see that? Um, you can kind of get some sense about that. Um, so as we think about uh, your data, what's going to be important is looking at across the clinical groups, where are your agencies today in terms of these kind of percents, because you're going to need to dig in a little bit further as you understand this. I just want to point out one other thing. Uh, complex nursing, if you look at that line, it's red just about all the way across. So clearly, that's one area 
um, that we see, uh, at least in our data set, um, the highest uh, looper rates uh, across all of the PDGM periods. You know, that was a couple years data. Uh, last year, um, we looked at some of the data for calendar year 19, and I wanted to just share with you, because that first slide was all about averages. This slide is actually breaking it down by, uh, uh, by HHRG. So you can actually see that, oh, wait a second, in um, period one, where the rates were a little low, it was only about 9%, I can see some rates up as high as 17 to 15 to 14. So on that first column, those rates are pretty high. And many of them are complex nursing. I think uh, six out of the 10 were at that higher rate. So those are the ones you have to pay attention to. When you look at period two, uh, you can see the rates are very high. I probably should have made them red, but they were darker green in my formatting. And those are the ones that you, you really want to pay attention to because if you have a large number of periods with those HHRGs, those 432 groups, those are the ones you want to think about and pay attention to. Um, and then finally, in period three, a lot of complex nursing, I think we saw that, uh, from that first slide. So things that you would want to think about in terms of your agency, how do I compare to these kind of benchmarks? So from an analysis perspective, you know, clearly uh, the looper rates, uh, when we heard from CMS initially, and we've kind of proven this out in a couple different places, you know, looper rates are actually not going to be that bad overall. I mean, in most cases, we saw looper rates, actually for our clients, coming down a little bit. But for those that are high, like complex nursing, for those that are high, like um, what you saw in period uh, number two, those are the ones that you want to think about. What is it that I should be doing to track and monitor that? So part of the analysis is looking at, again, your data and compare it to benchmarks. And keep in mind that the impact of just one visit can, can hurt you financially from $800 to about $2,500. And that depends on which group you're in. Was it an early? Was it a late? Typically, if you have a higher case weight and you have a lupa, that's going to have a more material impact because you're only getting paid per visit uh, com in comparison. So from an action perspective, things you should be thinking about is doing random samples, going in and looking at your actual cases so you can do some root cause analysis. Try to figure out if the patient's clinical picture matches the visit utilization that you provided. Was the lupa because you missed a visit? Was it because you, the patient was not homebound or the patient refused? Understanding this level of detail is going to be important to kind of then correct uh, for, the, for the, the way you're looking at these cases. So build workflows around those inappropriate lupas. If you remember on the earlier slide, I said late institution, second period, there were some high rates, especially when we looked at surgical aftercare. And there's probably a lot of those in your agencies. I would try to think about tracking those patients, thinking about as they're going from the first period to the second period to actually pause, maybe between the 24th and the 27th day, to kind of make sure that you're communicating with the team to ensure that you're not going to potentially have this uh, avoidable lupa. So that's part of that action plan. In terms of advocacy, you know, CMS has already come and said, you know, we believe there's going to be a push for agencies 
uh, to uh, add visits, one to two visits that were that are within um, one third of the the cases that they're seeing today for lupa thresholds. So they're saying that they're going to get those extra visits. And I wondered, what does that mean? What is that? How is that going to impact us if if we think about what CMS has looked at? And I actually went back and did a little math and. I'm a CFO from, from all my training, and I said, well, wait a second. If CMS says 7.1% equals um, today's looper rate, and they're going to see a 1.88% behavioral change, that represents $35 per period. And that $35, if you do the math, suggests that our looper rate, based on their, their first assessment, would need to go down to 4.6% in order to be able to achieve the behavioral adjustment. That's pretty low. I mean, I was, I was like, wow, do we expect that to happen? And so I think what, you know, they said that they're only going to do half of it this year and then half maybe next year. So I guess, you know, maybe it will be only about 5.9% in the first year. But keep in mind, as an industry, we have to track this because we need to be able to promote back to CMS, hey, we haven't really seen it or it's happening. Maybe you were right. We are seeing those behavioral changes. Uh, the next item I just wanted to, to kind of point out as keeping with the same four A's is KPIs and benchmarking. You know, clearly PDGM, you know, changes the, the payment components. And now we have 30-day periods. But the OASIS stays the same. So any of the outcome stuff that we look at, you know, shouldn't really need to change. But the terminology does. And so it's a time as leaders that you need to go back and make sure you're preparing and having dashboards that really look at now some of these new components uh, that make up um, uh, PDGM. And, you know, Nick is going to talk a little bit about cash in a few minutes, but it's going to be important today. You should be tracking how many claims and how many dollars do I have in queue at our MAC that still needs to be paid? What's my days to wrap? What's my days to final? How many unacceptable uh, diagnoses do I have? Track that and measure and, and monitor that hopefully coming down. And then cash days on hand. Some of the metrics that you're going to look at, like case weight, you can't really look at it compared to last year because they've changed up the formula. It's completely different. So some cases, visits per, what, stay? Visits per period, that looks completely different. So you have to almost start from scratch in some of your, um, your key indicators uh, to make sure that you're really tracking um, it correctly. And what's going to be important is really what's important to your organization. Really track those metrics that, you know, kind of meet some of the priorities that you have in your organization. And as they always say, measure only what you're going to manage, manage only what matters. So some of the analysis or the, some of the, the data points that I was starting to think about as I, you know, was kind of considering what would be these new benchmarks that you'd be looking for variances against? Well, clearly, anything that has to do with period payments. So period uh, payment periods, excuse me, by clinical group. How many were early, late? How many were community institution? Again, comparing that against benchmarks. Functional impairment level, comorbidity adjustments. We've already talked about the lupus. That's what you want to take a look at. Uh, see where you're variant, because those are the ones that are going to need for you to be able to make changes. You know, length of stay. I'm so used to thinking of, you know, length of 60 days and length, but now it's length of periods and lengths of stay for the full clinical episode. That's going to be important. Case weight, case weight by period. How's my first period case weight? How does that compare to the third 
case weight. Because that's going to be important as you then start to think about margin and profitability. Am I winning on one period but losing on another? Does that mean I don't do one or do the other? So things like that will have to be considered. Um, you know, visits uh, by discipline, by stay, visits by discipline, by period. Uh, you can see the, the rest of them on here. Again, a new mindset, a new data set. And you have to think about, well, who wants, who do I need to have a look at this data? And you'll have different audiences. You have your boards, you have your exec team, you have the staff. You want to be able to get some detail down to the staff level, to the directors that are responsible for a particular branch. Because you need to identify as part of your action steps, where do I have variances that are heading in the wrong direction? And plan for mid-course corrections where you need to. And then update with forecasts. I mean, how many of you are forecasting today on a regular basis? You kind of look at where you are in the first quarter, and then you start to think about, well, what does that mean now for my forecast for quarter two, for quarter three, for the rest of this year? I mean, we went into PDGM a little blind, right? We, we didn't have a lot of data. I mean, yeah, they, CMS gave us some data, and we got some consultants to give us data, but it wasn't perfect. You know, we, we actually, there were so many of these questionable encounters that how did you code those? Well, we weren't coding them before. Now they're in front of us. Now we have them. We're recoding them appropriately. So you really need to be able to think about how these forecasts will then support how am I going to end the year? And how is this going to help me start to think about the following year? Because I'm going to need to be budgeting and planning around that appropriately. So from an advocacy perspective, you know, I already mentioned what um, NOC is doing. We need to hear from you. We need to be able to provide support um, to the industry around areas that maybe are flawed or, as we said, diagnosis codes that doesn't make sense, that they're unacceptable. We, we've already proven that they can make some change there. Um, and we need to be able to, you know, with, you know, proposed rules, you know, put in your comments and support uh, the industry in that way. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Nick. All right. Thank you, Chris. Again, I'm uh, Nick Seabrook from Blacktree Healthcare Consulting. So, you know, at Blacktree, we do consulting, but another big part of our business is the billing and collections. So definitely wanted to focus in on the billing and cash flow. And in terms of the assessment, the what are we seeing today well, I mentioned before, we're definitely seeing some initial issues with the IQIES system, which is, again, where you're going to submit those OASIS to Medicare. CMS has already acknowledged that they are seeing the errors, are clearing up some of those errors, and they really have no intention, they say, to penalize agencies for some of the errors that are still occurring, but something you should definitely be keeping an eye on and making sure that if you hadn't heard any errors, that you're going back to your agency and asking those questions. Uh, some other initial issues we're seeing, we're seeing some issues with some of the clearinghouses, some of the EMRs. We're also seeing some issues specific for some of the different intermediaries. Again, we're working with all the intermediaries, not just the one you have up here in, in, in the New England area. But good news is, as you see on that next bullet, for Medicare, we have confirmed that some of the RAP payments are coming in. I know there was a lot of concern initially that, is Medicare going to get this right? I mentioned the SNF world before. They had some issues when PDPM hit, where a lot of agencies weren't getting reimbursed until 60 days into the actual uh, PDPM. So the fact that we're getting RAP payments paid is is a good indication that hopefully they, they got this right. Uh, in terms of the final claims, you know, Chris mentioned, really, if you're billing final claims at this point, they're probably going to be your loop of patients. So we have seen final claims that have gone out. They've hit. They were initially in a holding pattern in a 
uh, SPDGM status in terms of that claims processing status, but they've actually been released now and they're in the, the payment floor before it actually hits that paid status. So SB9099 for any of the you billing folks in the room, that's basically the status it's going to go to before it hits PB9996, which is the payment floor. So some encouragement that those are going to process through and pay. There were some claims, even the ones that started in 2019 ended in 2020, there was a period of time there where Medicare was holding everything uh, that was billed with that episode end date in 2020. But those have cleared up and their, their payments are, are starting to come through. So again, something to keep an eye on here is we're going to be coming up obviously on the end of the month and those first set of claims that are going to be those full 30-day periods are the ones that are going to be starting to go out the door. Medicare Advantage, I mentioned this before. A lot of, still, still a lot of confusion out there. Show of hands, has everyone gotten clarification from all their MA plans? Raise your hand if you've gotten clarification from all your MA plans on how they're handling PDGM. That's not a surprise at all. There's uh, the latest one I heard yesterday was one of the PDGM or one of the uh, Medicare Advantage plans. If the patient was admitted in 19 and crossed over in 20, you would think you're going to build that normal like a PPS episode, right? Well, they said, well, we were expecting agencies to discharge all those patients on 12-31-19 and start a new PDGM period with a start date of 1-1-20. So again, now that there's a lot of questions that go along with you know, cert periods and filling out OASIS. This is the one area that I would pay the most attention to in terms of billing under PDGM is your Medicare Advantage plans to make sure they're paying. I haven't heard of any Medicare Advantage plans that have issued a wrap payment as of yet. You know, they tend to take a little bit longer with their their payment processing times. Um, but again, something to keep an eye on and make sure that you're getting clarification for how they're supposed to handle it. I just heard another issue with, with an MA plan that rejected a claim for an invalid HIPS code because they weren't recognizing PDG, the PDGM HIPS code. So the question begs there, are you gonna you're gonna have some some PD uh, Medicare Advantage plans rather that are probably gonna stick with the PPS payment methodology for a while. You know, the expectation we're, we're telling, we've been telling our clients is expect some to, if there were PPS, switch to, switch to fee-for-service per visit. Some are going to adopt PDGM, and I think some are going to stick with PPS for at least a year because you do have that grouper out there for PPS for those patients that have that crossover. So the analysis, you know, what this is the, how is it impacting everyone? The biggest piece here is going to be that cash flow, and no matter what, you're going to see a negative impact on cash flow at some point in time this year. The when and where, or the when and how much is really dependent on these variables that I laid out here. Your days to wrap, you know, how quickly you're getting those wraps out the door, or your days to final, how quickly you're getting the finals out the door, whatever that case mix change is going to be. In other words, the revenue change between PPS and PDGM, and then the volume in terms of you know looking at your census, or more importantly, like Krista talked about before, your your periods per patient. What does that look like under PDGM? So if you haven't already, one of my biggest takeaways from my piece of my presentation here is you really want to build that cash flow model so you're, you, you know what to expect in terms of when that cash flow is going to go down. Now you might have already be, you, you might already be seeing it. You know, a lot of agencies were obviously still in the middle of the month, so we haven't closed out the month. But if you're keeping an eye on that cash flow, you're going to see some kind of a, a dip in that in that cash. If not this month, next month will definitely be when you're going to start to see that reduction for those for those Medicare cash payments coming in. So in terms of model, I'm going to just walk through a quick example scenario here 
And some of the assumptions I'm laying out here is, number one, that the wraps are going to pay seven days after submission. Number two, the final claims are going to pay 14 days after submission. And my third assumption in here is that you're billing daily. If you're not billing daily today, I would highly suggest that you bill daily both your wraps and final claims to make sure you're getting those claims out the door to, again, promote that, that healthy cash flow. The other piece as you're building out this model that you really need to determine are what are those variables for your agency. So if we look here at this model, I'm going to assume this is a, a $5 million agency in this scenario. My days to wrap are going to be seven days. I would say that's pretty much the, the benchmark right now. Some agencies are higher. I don't think, uh, you know, some agencies are lower, but I would say right around that seven-day mark is, is pretty, uh, pretty much the standard. Days to final claim in this scenario, we're going to say is going to be 14 days. We're going to say your case mix change, there's no change at all. You know, what, what that revenue you're going to be projecting under PDGM is the same as what you got in PPS. And then your periods per patient, we're going to put at 1.7. So some interesting pieces here. So what we did with this impact is we look at December as the $5 million agency dividing the $5 million by 12 months. You can see there about $400,000 in, in monthly cash. Pay attention also to that number at the bottom, that $13,441, which is your average daily cash. Now, if we look at what's going to happen in January, you can see, for this example in this scenario, cash flow went down about 22%. And why did that happen? Well, number one, we're going from a $3,000 HERG that we're getting 60% wrap payments. Now we're at an $1,800 HERG, and we're only getting 20%. Wrap payments, and then you have all those other factors that are also taken into account, and you're already starting to see the impact of PDGM on cash flow. Now, February is when it gets really ugly, right? You see the February cash goes down 37 percent. So between those two months, you're looking at you know a hundred, almost two hundred and fifty thousand dollars less in reimbursement than you're used to with that you know, $400,000 a month. So you can see there, your daily cash went down all the way to $9,000 a day. Again, keep in mind, February is a short month. We do benefit from the extra day with the leap year this year, but you know, it's still, you only have 29 days compared to you know, the, th the 30 or 31. Now we do see a, a pickup in March. You know, things start to normalize. You're getting those second period payments that are coming in the door in March, and all of a sudden you're, you're ramping back up at about 12% increase over what you're getting in, in December. And then you see it starts to stabilize. So you can see there, you know, April is down 3%. The only reason it's down 3% is because it's 30 days compared to 31. Keep a, a careful eye on that, that average daily cash. The new average daily cash for this agency is at 13503 So you can see that's going to be consistent all the way through. And we basically put this together so you can see that a couple of important factors here. Number one, the fact that you're going to be hit at some point, and it is going to catch up, but the important thing is it's not going to fully catch up. I think some of the expectation is that I'm losing 25% this month, 35% the next month. Well, it's all going to come back up, and I'm going to even out. Now, the fact that we're changing this model from that episodic, you know, that 60-day model where you're getting that $3,000 HERG to now the, the, the $1,800 $1, HERG in 30-day payments, it never catches up in, in this scenario. So you can see you're only getting your, the end result at the end of the year is that it's about a 4.7% reduction in overall cash compared to what they got in 2019. So again, I really emphasize that if you haven't built a model yet, make sure that, that you do.
So in terms of the action, so what is the action? What are the takeaways from a billing and cash flow standpoint for how are you implementing that change? Well, number one, you want to make sure you're maintaining that cash flow budget and you're updating it and making sure you're accounting for what those variables look like for your agency. How can you mitigate some of that cash flow impact? It's really look at you know, managing your unbilled, making sure that you don't have claims that are sitting out there that can't be billed because, for instance, they're missing orders, or making sure you're getting that those wraps out the door as, often, as, as quickly as possible. You want to really want to make sure you're managing that unbilled. The other piece there, closely monitor that Medicare Advantage. That scenario was just for Medicare, you know, for that Medicare cash flow. Medicare Advantage, if they don't get this right, that could be that much worse. Um, and then focusing on the non-traditional Medicare AR. Again, knowing that it's going to be a cash flow hit on the Medicare side, how can you impact overall cash flow to the agency? Really focusing in on those non-Medicare receivables so you make sure you're getting as much of that, those dollars in the door as possible to try to offset that, that loss. And then in terms of the advocacy standpoint, you really want to push those Medicare Advantage payers to get that, those PDGM payments. You're much better off in that, in that world as long as they process the claims cleanly, uh, getting that, that higher reimbursement for that. Pushing non-Medicare for better rates, I think that's just an overall um, challenge that we've had as an industry over the years. Telehealth reimbursement. We're starting to see more and more of this pop up where agencies are starting to get reimbursed either through Medicaid or through some of the different commercial plans. Um, you know, that's definitely something you should be asking as you're going through the contract renegotiation phase with your Medicare, you know, with your non-Medicare payers is to see what kind of reimbursement plans they have in place uh, for, for telehealth. Value-based reimbursement, that's something you're all very much familiar with here in, in Massachusetts. And then the other piece there is a notice of admission penalty. So we know that wraps are going away in 2022. We're going to have, you know, this year, we're going to have next year where you have no pay wraps. But part of that process, when the wraps are going away with, we have this new notice of admission that gets billed, which essentially flags it to say, you know, this is my patient. Medicare, just like for the notice of elections with hospice, are going to be penalizing agencies if that notice of admission isn't submitted within five days. And it created a huge issue with hospices and still creates an issue with hospices if they aren't able to get that timely documentation in to be able to get that, that full payment. So that's definitely something as we get closer to that implementation date that we want to advocate and try to get that, that penalty removed. The next area we covered here was staffing. So again, from some of the assessments, some of the early returns, what are we hearing? It's really been pretty quiet on that therapy side. Uh, again, that was the biggest thing with PDPM um, was, you know, the therapy agencies were, were, facilities were laying off therapists left and right. We haven't really, you know, I think that was probably the biggest question leading up to PDGM is what are agencies going to be doing with therapy? And everyone has been pretty much status quo, or at least they're saying they're status quo in terms of, you know, what that therapy staffing looks like. In terms of the analysis, you know, how is it impacting the status quo? Well, we know that on the therapy side, it's going to be a, a, an adjustment. You know, this is going to adjust how, you, how you're treating some patients. You know, from a global standpoint, uh, agencies will be adjusting how they're providing therapy. So the question is, how do you adjust? Is there different pieces where you could look at potentially incorporating PTAs or CODAs to supplement some of those PTs and, and OTs? Is maintenance therapy become more of a, a have more of a role under PDGM? And then looking at the model in terms of how you're paying for those for those services. Is there options now to go to more of a per diem or contract therapy can, compared to full-timers? 
Uh, within the revenue cycle specifically, I think the four main areas that we've seen impacted by PDGM are intake, you know, looking at how much more robust that process needs to be and make, how much more important it is to get that accurate up front. We've seen agencies that really have, have taken a closer look at what that staffing looks like and what the structure of that department is. Document management, you know, with orders tracking, now instead of having 60 days to get that signed documentation in to drop your claim, now you only have 30. So it's much more important to get that signed orders in-house. In so you're really looking at what staffing looks like there. Your QA, knowing how much more important coding is and really, you know, if you look at coding in Oasis, that basically is going to determine what your payment's going to be. So are you appropriately staffed within that QA department? Are you getting your reps out the door quickly is another area you know, that agencies have looked at from a, from a staffing standpoint. And then billing, you know, just with the volume of billing doubling. I personally don't think that it's going to have, it shouldn't have an impact in terms of staffing levels, what they should be with the volume billing, just of how automated that process is. But it's something that you should be definitely keeping an eye on. And then on the clinical staffing side, I think some of the changes in addition to therapy that we've talked most about is clinical management. You know, what's your supervisory management, whatever uh, you actually call that, position that's really supervising, supervising the nurses. What does your staffing look like there? We know that one of the big changes that PDGM has brought about is just more uh, comprehensive and more frequent case conferencing. So part of that process is what kind of support do you have for those clinicians to really make that an effective program? And then home health aids. You know, we've seen home health aid utilization go from this all the way to this, from the inception of PPS to today. Now with these changes, does home health aid utilization start to go back up. So something, again, to, to take a look at at your agency. The action in terms of, you know, how are you implementing this change? Really, I think it comes down to looking at, if you haven't already, what, what changes do you potentially need to make on the staffing side based on some of those early results of PDGM? So we put in some, you know, what, what would be considered some early warning signs. If you see, warning signs, rather. If you see an increase in your days to wrap, is that an indication that maybe you need to add staffing to that QA department? Now, you're not getting that those, those wraps out the door quickly enough because you're not getting those OASIS completed in time. If you're seeing an increase in days to final claim, maybe that's an indication that document management needs to be beefed up because you're not getting those finals out the door quickly. Now, if you're seeing an increase in LUPA percentage, that could be an indication that you need more assistance on the clinical management side. Um, you know, that could be an indicator there. Missed visits, maybe there's some issues with scheduling. So those are all, you know, indicators that could potentially lead to, to really what the answer is. The other piece there is if you're seeing a decrease in census, well, maybe we need to beef up, you know, the marketing team or maybe intake is overwhelmed and they're just not triaging those, those referrals quickly enough. Another indicator that you want to take a look at what that staffing looks like. And if you did make changes leading up to PDGM, you really want to look to see, all right, how is that impacting us? Did we make the right changes? And do we really need to add a staff or in this department or that department? Those are things that you want to be looking at on an ongoing basis. And then for the advocacy side, I think it all goes back to some of the common themes that we be, we've been hearing today is making sure you're sharing your story, right? If there is some kind of a direct or indirect effect on your staffing going up on PDGM, that needs to be shared so that CMS knows you know, we had to add this body. All they're going to see is, oh, your your cost per visit. You know, if you're looking at just what that direct cost is for those clinicians compared to your reimbursement, that's all they're going to be focusing on. But you want to really make sure that they have an understanding. Well, we had to add 20% to our 
back office or our clinical management structure in order for us to really adapt to these changes. Those are the, the, the stories that you should be advocating for and really, you know, hopefully CMS hears it and is able to not uh, have these cuts that, that they've had over the years. So with that, I think we're ready for Pat to come back up and get some questions. Um, as the moderator, I'll take a prerogative and make a couple of reflections on what I just heard. Um, first of all, I want to thank the panel from the State Association perspective of putting advocacy in their three A's. I know everything you all have on your plates, all the analytics, all the assessment that they talked about. We can't lose sight of the fact that there's still a lot to do in terms of advocating around this rule. Um, I think it's so odd, this behavioral adjustment thing. They, an entire payment system is designed to incentivize certain behavior. But then there are certain behaviors that they want to penalize as far. And so do we have this weird thing. If we do what they thought we were going to do, then we look sort of badly in the eyes of CMS. So keeping track of that, I think, is really important. I appreciate, Nick, you bringing up the notice of admission. Um, this isn't to point any fingers, but I'm not sure we were loud enough on that in this year's rule, how much of a problem that is. And um, not to name drop, but I had the um, uh, fortunate experience of having to talk to Hillary Loeffler, who's the director of CMS Home Health Payment and Policy, uh, when we were in Washington, right during the final rule comment, and I mentioned to her that we were hearing that this notice of admission, the timing, was really going to be difficult. I hadn't really thought of the hospice analogy. And she said, geez, we're not hearing that much about it. Um, you're the first person that talked to me about it. And the reverse side of that is just the reason we got that notice of admission in part because the independent physical therapists, and she admitted this straight out to me, were so loud in voicing their concerns that they weren't able to bill for their physical therapy patients because we were having a home health episode that was still open. So they were really vocal. And if you go back and look at the comments on the um, rule, there were hundreds of comments from independent therapists thanking CMS for putting this notice of admission requirement on us. So they do listen, and they do read those comments, and I think we have to be more vocal. Um, my final thought is, again, thank you for bringing up the Medicare Advantage. I'd be interested, not necessarily in this dialogue, we don't have enough time, in those states that have a lot of Medicare Advantage, like we do in Mass, um, if there's more we can be doing with you on that. Again, we don't generally negotiate things with Medicare Advantage plans, but if there's an educational role, if there's some way we can open dialogue, if you're not having it one-on-one -on -one with your plans, um, I think we'd be interested in hearing more about that. So with that, I open it up to questions. So the question was, I think the panel has said that if the documentation or the coding wasn't correct when you went to open an initial claim, should you go out and make a home visit to assess yourself? And then how, if you do go out and make a visit, how would you recommend that you have to go back to the MD and get the supporting documentation to support what you found in the home? That's an excellent question. Um, I do advise that, again, as a nurse, that this patient was referred to you for a reason. Um, and just because the physician might not be good enough at the, the type of diagnoses that impact that referral, um, we shouldn't not admit that patient. So I would advise you to go out into the home, do your assessment, and then when you call the physician, and, and I've done this before, and I say, Dr. So-and-so, I went out and admitted patient X, Y, and Z, and you referred them to us for muscle weakness. But while I was there, I noticed that they are on a new medication for, um, let's say, Parkinson's disease. I can't remember um, all my Parkinson's medicines offhand. Um, is it actually the issue with the muscle weakness related to the Parkinson's disease? Why, yes, it, it, it really is, but I wanted therapy in. Well, 
you can have therapy with Parkinson's disease. You can have therapy with hypertension. You can have therapy with coronary artery disease, believe it or not. Um, you might be questioned later on down the line, but there aren't any therapy diagnoses and non-therapy diagnoses, and that's the mindset that we have to move away from. And as usual, CMS as the, or home health as the industry is, is educating the physicians on, on how to document and, and diagnose and provide those diagnoses, rather. I, this we had some questions submitted, and this may be have already been answered. It'll be the same coin. But someone asked, what are your recommendations regarding a hard stop when an unacceptable diagnosis is entered at the time of referral? I mean, you said go out and, and check. Is there, are there other recommendations? And if we do a hard stop, does that affect our 48 hours of the, those issues? Yeah, I mean, if you do do a hard stop, it does affect your your 48-hour window. I mean, if, if you say, hey, I'm not going to go back out and see, and this was actually in the most recent OASIS Q&A, they said, well, we've started a new policy. We are going to have a hard stop if the diagnosis isn't appropriate, um, and we will not see the patient until we get an appropriate diagnosis. CMS says that's fine. Manage your agency any way you want, but the data referral is still the data referral. And that's the, the balance or, or the thing that you, you have to understand and deal with when you're trying to make these decisions as an agency. Other questions? The question was, the SNFs have moved to a PDPM payment and we've moved to PDGM. Has there been any intersection of what's happening in the post-acute industry as those sort of overlap? I have not. I have not heard anything specific to any interaction there or any impact she asked whether um, the changes in the PDPM system um, for SNFs may have some incentives around earlier discharge or referral patents to home care from skilled nursing facilities. And maybe that's something we could track if we're not right now. Yeah, Karen, I, I, I don't know it that well either. And some of you might be associated with skilled nursing facilities. Um, but I do know as a part of their calculation there is a, uh, an adjustment that they make after so many days where the rate actually starts coming down over time. So I would imagine, you know, if, if they would have otherwise kept them on for 30 days, all of a sudden, wait a second, on this day you're starting to, you know, apply an adjustment that actually takes a percent of, the, of that, you know, initial payment I got. So I can imagine they might be evaluating that. There was an article I know that came out in Home Healthcare News a few days ago that was saying some of the early returns is that the average daily rate for SNFs has actually gone up since uh, since PD, PDPM was implemented. So Donna says that she's hearing from her SNFs that they want patients who are deteriorating at home, don't go back to the hospital, go back to the SNF, um, which is something I think we, we need to work more on. So I, I appreciate that comment. Although this is a question, and I'm going to read it because I'm not an expert on this, relates to that. The new process recommended by CMS when a patient gets admitted to a SNF, CMS expects agency to do an OASIS transfer and discharge, then readmit the patient with a new start of care rather than a resumption of care. And what is the rationale for this, and, and, and is this um, going to cause problems for agencies? So have any of you, I mean, is this a question that you have? You probably, yeah, okay. So basically when CMS created their PDGM payment, um, and as part of the um, the IMPACT Act, they had to begin tracking things across all post-acute care settings. And one of the OASIS items is related to where you were discharged from. And so they um, broke it up so that you have an institutional payment the first 30 days. If you, if an answer, any of those on your, on that um, locator 
or I'm sorry, that OASIS item is marked as it's considered inpatient and you're paid accordingly. However, the second 30 days, unless it is a discharge from a hospital, in the 14 days prior to that 30-day period, then it is a community. So if you go from a SNF or an inpatient rehab or a psych hospital, your reimbursement is community. So the challenge that you have to, so what CMS said is, okay, I still need to put all these people in this post-acute category. But these agencies are going to get really upset if they're not being paid appropriately. So their solution was, okay, let's just discharge. You can discharge your patient and then readmit them and get the institution payment. What challenges immediately come to mind when you dish face-to-face? Yeah, I mean, you have to re... And just the administrative nightmare that you have as an agency, new orders, everything. So what we did is, is we, we asked the question to CMS, and CMS said, well, obviously we need to think about this a little bit more. They're still thinking about it, last I heard. Um, but right now, what we thought um, and what some of us in the industry have said is, okay, you've got to do a math game here and weigh. If your patient is discharged from the hospital, they go into a SNF and it's in the 14-day window, do a resumption of care because that hospitalization counts even though the last one was the SNF. If the patient was out, is not in that 14-day window, and they went to a, a SNF and they came back out, it's in that first 30-day period, just do a resumption of care. It, you're not going to get an additional reimbursement for that patient coming out in that 30 days. It really only applies in the, that 14-day special window. Now, you look at your patient and you have to make a decision. How hard is it? How much is the administrative burden compared to the additional reimbursement I will receive by that being an institution um, setting. And right now, the accountants are saying that it's about a 44% increase in your average payment if it comes from an institution setting in that second 30 days. So if the patient, you know the doc, you're going to get that face-to-face -face back, you, the guys are right on it, then you might want to consider discharge and readmitting. But if it has been a nightmare from the get-go with getting the documentation that you need for that patient, if you can't get people out to see that patient, whatever, then you probably are going to want to resume that patient. You just have to look at where your costs are going. Does that make sense? If you, if you run into, there's a, a couple of different um, uh, workflows or, or decision trees that are out there that um, kind of help you make that decision, but ultimately it's a math game. One of the other challenges with this scenario is CMS is not saying, making it a rule. They're saying they're expecting agencies or agencies should discharge the patients in these scenarios. It's not a required to. So that's, you know, there's, I've seen some email correspondence specifically from CMS asking these questions. You know, can you be more black and white rather than this gray area? You know, even saying the question, well, do we get penalized if we don't discharge a patient in a situation where they did get transferred to a post-acute setting? And they've said, no, there's no penalty. So it's it's very, you know, again, a gray area when it comes to this scenario overall. Karen asked, what's the effect of pepping yourself in that situation? It's still going to be a significant impact. I mean, peps are still going to be a... a correct. Absolutely. Since you can look back 90 days, can you use the initial face-to-face? -face? 
Um, so we actually just discussed this because it's like, well, do we really have to do that? And I checked the regulations, and yes, every new starter care that still requires a new face-to-face that's specific. Yeah. The regulations that I saw have said that you have to have a new face-to-face. Um, and the, the probe and educates that I've seen have dinged folks for not having a new face-to-face that's specific for that episode. But I'll, I can absolutely go back and check again. The regulation says that you can, if it's a direct, so if it's a direct admit to home care from a SNP, you can't use the face-to-face from the hospital admission. And the rationale behind that, they've said, is that the patient's condition has obviously changed from the initial time that you admitted them. A couple of quick questions here that people have submitted. Instead of sending muscle weakness, physicians are sending atrophy. Do you need to know the site or the reason for this to be an acceptable primary diagnosis? So this gets a little specific. You do need to know the site, but you do not have to have the reason. So if the physician says it's it, they have atrophy of the bilateral upper extremities, that's great. But to send a referral that says atrophy, that wouldn't be accepted. Don't be shy. I started out by mentioning cash flow, and you talked a lot about it, um, Nick. Um, and I know you talked about if you're struggling with cash flow, look at your staffing, but if you're struggling with cash flow, what are some of the other best practices to reduce days to wrap or days to final? I know you mentioned it in staffing. Are there other ideas you have? Yeah, I would say for days to wrap, I always like to look at from the time that patient gets seen all the way through to the time point that that oasis gets submitted, looking at it and breaking it down into different time points. So you want to have the time that it gets from that clinician over to QA, the time it gets from QA back to the clinician with the recommended changes, and the time it gets from that clinician accepting or rejecting those changes before it actually gets locked. That's going to tell the really big story in terms of what that days to wrap are. I would say most in most cases, it's that time between when QA is making their recommendations to the clinician, the clinician actually accepting those changes. You really want to have a pretty tight window in terms of response time that's allowed there. It should be at 24, 48 hours at most for them to be able to re- review that and send it back, because if that is... You know, that, that could really spiral out of control if, if you don't have those protocols in place for that. Um, then for the days to final, what's going to be the biggest impact on, on the days to final is going to be the orders tracking. So you know, a couple things for orders tracking, just make sure you have protocols in place with those follow-ups. And again, it's going to probably be more strict now that we have only 30 days to get those final claims out the door. So making sure you have those touch points with those physicians to, to get those, those orders in the door making sure that that process is as automated as it possibly can be. You're sending out the orders on a daily basis. You're doing those follow-up touch points on a daily basis. Also making sure you have that timely documentation. You, know, you don't want to have a situation where you have a visit that's not completed in your EMR on, you know, for, for a claim that ends on day 30 and you're, not, you're waiting until day 35 to f- complete that visit. That could be, again, holding up uh, that claim. For, so I think a lot of it comes down to that orders tracking protocol in addition to the timely documentation. The one other piece I'll throw in there is making sure you, from an order standpoint, we've seen agencies where they have a high amount of orders outstanding because they have such a high amount of supplemental orders. So the, as many of those orders you can get up front when you're developing that plan of care, and this goes back to making sure that if, if there's nursing and therapy involved, making sure you have both of those, that initial assessment and the eval completed, so you have a more complete plan of care that's created so you're not having supplemental orders that are keep going out the door. Well, I started the, the Q&A by talking about the advocacy around behavioral adjustments and reminder that advocacy did get the behavioral adjustment reduced. I'm looking into crystal ball. Are we over the hump with behavioral adjustments? Do we think as we see what happens 
um, this year that we may be looking at that again? Or is there any crystal tea leaf reading that we can do? <laughs> well, I don't know if we have the crystal ball, yeah. but I will say in the final rule, it was pretty telling, right? So CMS said, we believe the behavioral adjustments is approximately 8 point whatever, 4 percent, but we're going to reduce it by half in the first year because it's going to take agencies a year to really get those behavioral adjustments. So the sign language in that is we're going to have behavioral adjustments next year, and they're going to get us up to that 8%. Yes, they'll have some time to maybe do some um, review. They'll start looking at claims. I don't know if they'll have a lot to be able to look at, frankly, by the time they have to issue the proposed rule. But the, the fear that I have is that there are other behavioral adjustments. It's the elephant in the room that we haven't really looked at yet, at least from CMS's perspective, and that is the number of, of periods that will be extended. Those first period onlys, the therapy ones where you're only in for 30 days and that you're going to go to a second period to avoid, uh, and to get the, the second period payment, those are the ones that I think CMS is holding in their back pocket, ready to, um, to release them at some point, and maybe not next year, but um, I worry about that. Um, and so, yes, I think behavioral adjustments are going to continue. I think we need your support uh, as an industry to kind of help us understand, are they actually happening? Um, but uh, I think it's, it's going to continue, Pat. Thanks, Chris. Um, I know that the panelists will probably be around if you wanted to ask something one-on-one. -on -one. I think they'll stay here for a few minutes. Some of them may convene to the Rebel Guild Bar upstairs if you want to toast yourselves making it through the first month of PDGM. That might be a, a good thing. But let me first thank the panelists. Talking Home Care is a production of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. If you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about our association, visit us at www.thinkhomecare.org. Thank you.